We have gone over the last six weeks promises that God has made in His Word that are ours to hold on to. Literal game changer for us to memorize and to wrap our minds around and to own as our promises. And you've seen this imagery of the white flag, right? And that generally means, right, it's a symbol of surrender and submission. Not usually something that is seen uh, as something to be excited about. Uh, Certainly not something to be seen as a victory banner, but that is in fact what it is because in God's economy... The promises that he has made, promises that were, the things that he has said in his word, are things that are ours because of surrender. They're ours when we bow the knee to him and let him do what he does best. When we trust his word to be true in our life and we follow that in obedience. And so today we're going to continue in that same theme with the last promise in our series, the promise of hope. And so if you've got a copy of God's word with you today, if you would go ahead and turn to the book of 2 Timothy chapter number 4. 2 Timothy chapter number 4, this is a letter, it's an epistle that Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy. Hopefully it will give us some clarity today about where our hope is founded, where it should be founded, right, and what that looks like. And so as you're turning there uh, this morning, I need to own up to something in the Duncan house, all right? So last week... Um, I may have made a really good decision or a really bad decision. I'm not, the, the jury is still out on this. Uh, but with the measly price of only $6.99, uh, my family and I have entered into the wonderful world of Disney+. Plus. All right? So <laughs> surprising how many people uh, may have also done that, it sounds like. So, uh, and so, like I said, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but as a, the first night that we had it, of course, you know, we bought it for the kids, of course. And, uh, and so when they were in bed the first night, and they hadn't seen it yet, uh, I'm scrolling through all the options. And I'm like, wow, look at all of these crazy movies. These are movies I haven't seen since I was a kid, all right? Like, I didn't even know that there were four sequels to The Lion King. I didn't know that, right? They're there. I can watch them. And then, like, my favorite thing is I'm scrolling through the options, uh, in case you don't know, this is a streaming video service from Disney. Hopefully, like, that's all over the news now, so you got that. But uh, I'm scrolling through the options, and there's a section there labeled, From the Vault. And I'm like, ooh, right? Because, like, when you were growing up as a kid, like, they would always warn you, you know, when, like, you got the, the movie or you'd see the advertisement, hurry, buy your copy today before it goes into the vault. And you're like, is this a real thing? Like, is there somewhere a vault in Florida where you can go and, like, there, someone's in charge of the vault and there's all the Disney movies, right? Like, so you would feel pressure. Like, I've got to get this movie. Of course, that never happened in my house. I just hung out with all the friends that bought all the stuff, okay? So I go over to, like, my friend's house, and I think his house was actually the Disney vault because he had every single thing that you could want. All right, how many of you were like, that was me? Like, how was that kid? Yeah, okay. So that's just the reality, right? So I've got... I'm, I'm getting way off base here. I've got Disney Plus. I'm looking through all the options. It's great. All right? But I'm thinking about like the, the plot lines for these classic Disney movies. All right? And I remember as a kid, you're watching and like, you know, they're so inspirational, right? Like usually the general plot line is there's a, a her- you know, hero or a heroine that's like, you know, they, they, they're under like a, a load of stress or it's like a, a big thing on them that they can't get past. And, and throughout the course of the movie with a little bit of pixie dust and some fairy godmother magic and some good old, you know, fashion intuition and know-how, they push through, right, and make it out on the other side. And then we get that famous tagline of every fairy tale story ever, right? They, they lived what? Happily ever after, like they got the thing that their little dream that was a wish that your heart makes heart and kind of put out there, like my little hopes and dreams, if only I could find Prince Charming, they always end up with the thing, don't they? 
And you watch that as a kid, and you're like, wow, these are awesome, right? These are great movies. Like, you just, so my, the world is full of possibilities. If only I could find a Tinkerbell, I might be able to fly, right? Like, that's the thought process. Now, when you go back as an adult, though, and you watch those movies, there's something that's lost on us, though, as an adult, isn't it? So we watch those plot lines, we watch those movies, and you're like, you know, that sounds really good. It's good to have those hopes and dreams, but, like, we've lived a little bit now, and we know that even if I play by the rules, even if I plan ahead, there's no guarantee those things are going to work out the way that I think, is there? Like sometimes Prince Charming turns out to be the frog prince, right? And sometimes that bag of pixie dust is actually just a bag of sawdust, and empty promises are made and broken. And sometimes things are just not fair. Like we, we translate that mindset for hope after experiencing disappointment. Many of us can even find ourselves in, in a dark place where it feels like there is absolutely no hope whatsoever. Nothing is going to work the way that I think it is, so why even try? Right? And we find ourselves in these patterns of trying to, like, if I can't have the things, if I can't have the future that I want, then I'm going to make something in its place for today. And just like that, that ancient philosophy that the Bible talks about, which is not, not new, and it's, it's in the same in every culture, right? That philosophy of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. You know what? If tomorrow's not going to work out, I might as well enjoy today. So we find ourselves in addictions. We find ourselves in financial trouble because we've made rash decisions, right, to get what we want. Where did the hope go? What changed from that childlike perspective that there's, there's something out there waiting for me. What changed in us, right? We became cynical. So we look at the Bible. I'm afraid when we talk about hope, that we translate some of that cynicism, some of that skepticism onto the promises that God has for us. Because we've lived a little experience, right? And we begin to think, well, God has said this, and that sounds like something ideal in my mind, but like, I don't want to hold God too much to that in case it doesn't work out. And there's not really hope there at all, is there? So let me ask you today, and I think this is the, from God's word here, it's going to speak to us and give us this answer, but what is the key? What is the key to a lifetime of hope that doesn't leave me hanging? Like, what is the key to a lifetime of hope? I'm going to give you, this is kind of our main idea today that's going to run throughout the course of the text. A lasting hope comes from a living faith. And remember that a lasting hope comes from a living faith. All right, what do we mean by a living faith? And a really simple definition of faith. I use this with our students, and I think it, just, it sticks, right? Faith, faith is taking God at his word while taking a step of obedience. All right, it's, it's both and. It's taking God at his word, it's acknowledging that God has said this, and I believe that, and that's final, and then I'm going to take a step in obedience to that, even if I can't see how it's going to work out. That's what faith is. Remember, the book of James says that faith without works is what? All right, it's an active faith. A faith that believes moves on that belief, right? So when I say a living faith, what I'm going to talk about, a living and active faith is the key to a lasting hope, right? Taking God at his word while taking the next step. 
And so we're going to see this kind of laid out in Paul's uh, life here, just to give you some context for the Scripture before we read it. This is the very last writing that Paul made. It's the very last letter that he wrote, the letter that we have, right? It's the last letter in the Bible that he wrote. And uh, it was to Timothy, his young protege, right? A boy, he had spent a lot of time with raising as a young pastor. I invested a lot of time into him. And Paul is in Rome, and he's literally waiting in a prison cell ready to die. All right, that's why it's his last letter. He knows it's not much longer. It's not much longer, so they're going to walk through the door, and they're going to escort me to the executioner, and it's going to be done. And so in those last moments that he has, he spends this time writing a letter to Timothy, right? What you might expect, you know, it's a fairly hopeless situation. You envision, like Paul sitting in that cell, and you think about if you're familiar with Paul's life, sort of the trajectory, you know, from an outside perspective of his life. Remember, he started off in a very wealthy family. He was well-educated, well-trained, well-respected in his community, uh, had, had the respect of, of the people, had the respect of the religious institutions. And then in a moment when he was on the Damascus Road, Jesus interrupted his life and turned it completely upside down. And he went from being enemy number one of the church to going out and starting churches. Isn't that crazy? What amazing work that that Jesus can do, right? But from that point, like, he lost all that wealth. He lost the respect of his family. He lost the respect of his friends. He lost the respect of his community. And basically, for the rest of his ministry, while he was planting churches, he was on the run. He was on the run. Several times, they tried to kill him with stones. Several times, he was shipwrecked. Several times, he was thrown into jail. Think about, like, from the outset, looking at his life. If you classify his life by the events that happened to him, you'd say, wow, that's a terrible life, right? And now you're finishing it off, not in some bed in your retirement, comfy and cozy, but in a cell in Rome, right? Even the the friends that he had there got uncomfortable with the fact that they knew him, and they abandoned him to that. So I'm, I'm saying all that to say this is the context of the words that he's going to say to Timothy, all right? So read with me. We're going to start reading in verse number one. Of course, our focus today is in verses six, six through eight, but I'm going to read verse number one. So remember, he's talking to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, rebuke, and exhort. Get that out. And with complete patience and teaching, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth, and they'll wander off into myths. And as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. And then Paul kind of shifts focus to himself at this point. He's talking about himself. He says, verse 6, For I am already being poured out As a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All right, this is the first thing this morning as we look in this passage. First truth as it relates to the promise of hope that we have, is that a living faith, remember that's that living faith that gives us a lasting hope, a living faith views death as a departure, not as a dead end. 
not as a dead end. All right, so again, going back to Paul in that jail cell, hopeless situation from the outset, right? You can imagine putting yourself into that situation. These are not like cushy modern jail systems. This is basically a dank hole with a cage on the front of it, waiting to die. And here he is encouraging Timothy. (laughs) Who has bandwidth to do that, right? I'm being tortured and waiting to die. I don't know that my first thought is, you know what, I'm going to send a letter. I'm going to encourage somebody, right? So what what has changed about what's going on in his life that's allowing him to do this? I love the the verbiage that he says here in verse number six. He recognizes, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, right? So if your idea of like pouring... Uh, an, an offering of wine, or, you know, onto the altar, right? Like, it's literally like that liquid is, is, is escaping. Like, there's not much time left. But then he says critically there, he says, the time of my departure has come. He intentionally did not use the word finish or end. He used the word departure, and that's a, that's a clue to what he's thinking. Here's, here's a quote from Kent Hughes. It's an important quote. The way that a period of history interprets death is a valuable key to understanding the spirit of the age. And you think about through history how different cultures have viewed death. And you think about our culture as it relates to death. What do we try to do with it? Prolong as long as possible. We're going to stay as far away from that thing, right? right we, that's why we're, we've got the longest life expectancy, right? So, you know, to date, like we figured out medical signs, and that's great. We praise God for that. Like we, we have procedures done. We take medications. We apply product to our face to at least give the appearance that we are younger, right? <laughs> Nobody here would do that. In our culture, death is the big stop, right? It's the big stop. Uh, we lose Hope so often, so easily in this life that we have because we feel like we've missed a shot, right? You ever felt like, and I'm just starting to get to this point, where I'm starting to realize at 38 there are some things I probably shouldn't do. Like maybe it's not a good idea for me to keep doing those things, right? I'm going to pay for that later, right? And some of you are like, just wait, right? Just wait. It's true though, you know? It's true. Alice and I were talking the other night. We were complaining because we are falling asleep at like 9 o'clock now. Like what is wrong with us? Like, put the kids to bed, and we're like, well, what do you want to do? Sleep? <laughs> it's like, that's, okay, you know, where did, where did the fun people go? Like, what's going on? Maybe that's just a phase. I don't know. I doubt it, right? I'm reminded every day. I'm reminded every day that I can't do the same things I used to do, right? I'm reminded of, of different pains, right, that, that come up. I'm like, that, that wasn't there before. Like, where did that come from, right? Like, it's just a constant reminder. Not, I don't stay the way that I am forever, I'm not promised the state that I'm in forever, right? That changes so quickly. You know, our culture, like I said, is obsessed with avoiding the issue of death. In fact, maybe in the other way, we celebrate youth in our culture, don't we? Like in so many different ways. Not just like in, in beauty products, right, and looking young. But like even like who we listen to. It's like, well, you know, the future, the hope really lies with the young people, so we should listen to them instead of this person that might have more experience, Right? Like that's, that's a reality of our culture. We avoid that. The problem, though, is not that we are getting older. That's not the problem. It's that our hope is rooted in our own ability to do something in our life, to change our life ourselves. And we are in the generation of the information age, right? We're in that information age. The generation of like, if I can't do it, I can hack it. 
You know, like there's some way I can figure this out. You know, I, this week uh, I had a plumbing issue and I got on the YouTubes and I searched how to fix that thing myself. Take that, plumbers. You know, I did that myself. Saved 200 bucks, probably. I don't know. We can do that, right? And we start to apply that thinking. We start Googling. We start applying. We think we're a Google. We're like, you know what? I can figure this out. You know, there's got to be a way around this. You know, I, I just need to talk to the right person, right? I need to work a different angle. I can figure out this situation. What are we doing when we're doing that? We're looking for hope. Where? Right here in this life where I'm at right now. Our hope is resting in that. If I get this thing, if I get this relationship, if all of my hopes and dreams, it's still that little Disney World elementary type of idea. If all those things come true, I'll make it, right? See, the problem is, though, that's, there's a major theological problem with that. You know what it is? When I say theological problem, I mean what I believe about God to be true. The problem with that is, so we start to apply that thinking to the Bible. So what we'll do is we'll try to treat the Bible like it's a self-help book. All right? You know, like when you go to Barnes & Noble, people don't do that anymore. But if you went online or you look at, your, at Amazon and see your top, you know, New York Times bestseller list, a lot of them, surprisingly, maybe not so, are what? Self-help books. How to be better with people, how to communicate, how to reorganize your life, how to get a great work-life balance, you know, all those things, right? Um, the problem is we start treating the Bible like that. But you know what, the Bible, I love the Bible when it gives me an encouraging verse that makes me get up and try again, right? As if it's just like little, a little book of like trite phrases, you know, to make us feel good about ourselves. The Bible is not a self-help guide for you to live your best life now. It's a theological roadmap to remind you that your best life is yet to come. Amen. That your hope is not going to be found in this life now. So when Paul says, when Paul says, the time of my departure has come, all right, he used that word on purpose. It's the same idea of like a boat that's moored to a dock. All right, when you want to go somewhere, what do you have to do first in that boat? You got to unmoor it from the dock, right? But you don't get in that boat just to sit there by the dock, do you? You're kind of dumb. You get in the boat because you want to go somewhere. Paul's like, I'm getting ready to leave. I'm going on a journey. I'm out of here, right? The time of my departure is come. It's Paul himself that said to be absent with the body. You know where I'm going with this? Is to be what? Present with the Lord. To be absent from the body, to depart this existence is the reality of I'm moving to a new existence in the presence of God, right? Face to face. In fact, he says, 2 Corinthians 5, you don't have to turn, I'll read it to you. For we know that if this tent that is our earthly home, he's talking about our body, if this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. That sounds a lot more permanent, doesn't it? A building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, we long to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on that we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. In other words, like, I'm not wanting to take this thing off, I'm wanting to put on something new. Right? There's something new waiting for me in that heaven, in that beyond, that hope that I have that's waiting for me. I want to put that on. I'm groaning in this body. Every day it's a reminder that, it, that things are not the way that it should be. Right? But don't you think? Don't you think sometimes we've gotten too familiar and comfortable with this existence? Right? 
like overlooking the obvious. Like, what if I was born and there was like a giant, like, thorn in my leg, you know? And I just kind of like lived my entire life with this thorn in my leg, you know? And I, it was causing me pain day by day, poisoning me. I'm kind of like, yeah, that's my thorn. It hangs out with me and I just get used to it, right? That's what we've done. We've gotten used to, to this life and we've accepted it as normal when there's something far much greater awaiting us. And Paul's saying, he's like, I am leaving this existence. I'm leaving this mortal existence and I'm moving on to something greater right? I'm leaving you, but I'm going to be with Jesus. My greatest reality, a living faith says my greatest reality is not where I am, but where I'm going. Amen? You see, to die as a believer is not an end, but it is the beginning of who I really am and who I will be for every minute after. Man, by God's grace, if I live to be 80 years old, that's a pretty good long time, right? But that there's nothing compared to eternity, right? And nothing compared to that. And that's awaiting me today. So how does that frame our thinking, though? How does it frame our thinking when our hopes and dreams, our hopes are wrapped up in what I can accomplish for myself in that short 80 years, right? Maybe you don't get that long. How does that frame my thinking when I look at God, when I approach His Word, when I hear His promises? See, Paul recognizes even in writing to Timothy, that is a challenge. It's a challenge to think like this. You know, if you ever talk to someone that is, they're on their deathbed, right? They know it's going to be any day. And when you talk to them and ask them what they're thinking, they're not worried at all about what is happening here, all right? That's not their concern. If anything, they're like, they're praying, you know, especially if they're a believer, they're praying for someone else in their family to know Jesus. They are not worried about themselves. There's a certain clarity that comes at the end of our life when everything is in perspective. And Paul is in that moment, that moment of clarity. He's like, Timothy, with every fiber in your being, you are going to want to find your identity and your hope in what this world has to offer, right? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna judge your value. You're going to judge uh, uh, what God is doing by what happens in your life and the circumstances. And when something doesn't go the way that you expect it to, you're going to be tempted to doubt and to give up hope, but you cannot do that because this life is temporary. There's something greater that's to come, right? There's something greater. And so here's the thing. He wanted to remind him. He's moving on to verse number seven. He says, for I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I love that he illustrated it a couple different ways there. He called it first a fight. And that's the second thing this morning, a living faith, right? That living faith that leads to a lasting hope. A living faith endures the fight until the finish. It endures the fight unto the finish. What do we mean by the fight? And do you recognize, you recognize in, in taking a step, that faith step of obedience to follow God and take him at his word, that you're walking into a war zone when you do that, right? A war of what? A war of sin at work in me, right? A daily struggle to believe what God says is true and not what feels right to me. A daily struggle with the own temptation of my sin, but then also an enemy that's actively working to subvert that faith and going after me. You know, I think, I think one of the lost Christian disciplines in our American church culture, 
Right? This is not necessarily true for other, other churches around the world. It's certainly not true through all of church history. But one of the, one of the aspects of Christian discipline right, that I think is lost is the Christian discipline of suffering. We have forgotten what it means to suffer with Christ. We've forgotten that Scripture commands us to follow Him into suffering. I want you to picture for a minute Jesus on that road to Calvary. And He's walking, and He's beaten, and He's bleeding, and He's got that cross. And you're standing there at the roadside of the crowd, and you're seeing this coming, and you, you know because you heard His words. Everything He said resonated in your spirit, and you believed that, and you saw Him rise in popularity, and you got excited, and then sudden downturn. And then the, to have this happen... And you see him walking there in front of you. And as he's walking, he makes eye contact with you. And he stumbles and he falls and he drops the cross. Do you bend down and pick it up? Do you put your neck on the line, step down and take that cross and help him with that? Or would you kind of move back into that crowd, right? I like you, Jesus. I just don't want to get hurt. Paul says, there's a fight, Timothy. It's going to be a fight to trust in the promises of God. It's going to be a fight to look ahead and not find your hope here. But you need to fight that fight every single day. Fight that fight. But then he also says, I have finished the race. I finished the race. You know, about 10 years ago when I was more fit and active and did more distance running, I, did a, I ran a marathon. Only one, all right? I'll never do it again. It was a It's a good life experience. I don't recommend it (laughs) if you want knees, all right? uh, It was a good life experience. I trained about a year, about a year of training to to try to get ready, you know, since you don't just hop out one morning and decide to run a marathon. Uh, Paid my money, and I went to Washington, D.C., the Marine Corps Marathon. It was a lot of fun, amazing experience, like thousands of people there uh, running in this marathon. And so I started off, I'm feeling pretty great, right? I was like, like I told you, I was super in shape, right? I was on this thing. I had all my mile times written on my arm, so I knew what my splits were. It was great. I had it all timed out, knew when I thought I was going to finish. Start off on the race. And it was, it was a really interesting experience to run with thousands of people at once. Right? I've never done that again. We're, we're running along, and then a hill approaches, right? And it's really cool. Like, there's a collective groan among everybody that's around you. I'm like, oh, not another hill. And then you get to the top, and like, you start going down the other side. Everyone's like, yay, we made it down the hill. And there's people cheering and clapping, and there are people handing out water and handing out snacks, and you're feeling great about it. And then there's sometimes, though, as the race went on, where the group kind of got spread out. And there were definitely parts of that 26 miles where I was by myself. Let me tell you what what an amazing difference it was, especially my motivation. Like, it's hot. I'm running out there. You know, it's like there's one part we went by the Pentagon. It was just like on flat freeway. It's like we were baking in the sun the whole way. And I was like, this is terrible. Why did I sign up for this? Right? All by myself. There's nobody cheering on this bridge. You're not allowed to be on this bridge. The person's just out there by yourself, running. Right? And then like, you'd come up over the next hill, and then you'd kind of see, like, oh, I think that's the finish line, way over there. And then you go back down in the valley again, and you're like, I don't know where I'm going. Right? Something crazy happened, though, once I got to about mile 20. I'd heard about this phenomenon before, right? The wall. Everyone talks about that in running. Like, I'm going to hit the wall. It's a legit thing. I'm mile 20. Um, I don't know how to explain it other than the fact that like, I forgot where I was and who I was, I feel like, for a little bit there. 
and I had like tunnel vision on the road in front of me. And I knew that there were people running on the road in front of me because I could recognize that. I didn't know if there were runners or not. I just knew that there were people going in this direction. And so I just figured I should keep doing that. And I got to the place where it was such a mental game. I didn't feel my body anymore. I'm just like trying to keep my eyes on whoever that person thing is in front of me until crazily I got to the finish line. I got there. And it was super humbling. When I got across the line, there was a bunch of Marines there. Um, and they were putting medals on everybody, which that was, that was an amazing experience. But I come to the, the finishing gate, and the guy bends down and says, congratulations, and he puts this medal around my neck. And I'm like, wow, that's so cool. Now, before you get too excited, this medal is not a first place medal. <laughs> it actually just says finisher, okay? So <laughs> I finished, right? I, I finished the race. Now, this is a nice medal, considering how much I paid for the race. I feel like I got shafted, though, but still... <laughs> What was that medal for? It was was an evidence to say you made it to the end. Now, here's the thing. I never intended to get first place, all right? I never intended. There's so many better people at that than me. My goal all along was to what? Was to finish. And so Paul, when he's saying, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, Paul didn't say, I came in first place at it. All right, there were some days, there were some days where it felt like I was just trying to be obedient, but it was like running uphill the whole way. And I was tired, all right? And there was nobody around me to encourage me on. Some days, it was flat. It was great. And there were people beside me the whole way, and they were cheering me on. I think Sundays are like that day for us, right? We come together. We cheer each other on. We praise God together, and then we get out. Like that Wednesday comes around all too soon, and it's like I go down into a valley, and I can no longer see where this is at and how long I have to go. Paul's like, Timothy, you're going to feel like that some days. You're going to feel like your hope is wrapped up in how you're performing and how you're making it, and you're going to want to give up. You don't think Paul ever wanted to throw in the towel? You don't think like after that first like stoning that he got, he was kind of like, ah, it's kind of dangerous. You know, definitely after the second time, you know what, there's other things I could totally be doing that would be less likely to get stoned, right? For sure he did. Why? How do I know that? Because he wasn't like a super person. He was was just a follower of Jesus like I am, trying to do what God told him to do, trying to hold on to the hope of a promise. And so every day he got up and he took one more step of faith in obedience to what God had said. One more step of faith. And it wasn't easy. And it felt like a fight the whole way along. He's like, Timothy, do not give up hope. Your hope is not in being first place, right? Your hope is not in having an easy course. Your hope is what lies at the finish line. So he says, I've kept the faith. What does he mean by that? He's like, I didn't give up ground. By God's grace, I didn't give up ground. And he's not saying that in a prideful way. He's like, some days it was two steps and some days it was a half step. But I kept the faith. That living faith, that living and active faith motivated him to continue so he could see the finish line in the distance. So as we said, like, you know, every race has a reward right at the end. What was the reward that Paul was looking to at the finish? What was that reward? Let's go to verse number eight. Henceforth, you know, in other words, because of this, there is laid up for me 
the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All right, just think about what he just said. Think about what he said. He's like, when I get to heaven's door, and I see Jesus standing there, and I recognize him for who he is, and I can see him in the fullness of his glory for the first time ever, he's going to come up to me with the crown of righteousness and put that on my head, declaring me righteous. Isn't that amazing? Let me ask you something. I I think, I think, because of our tendency to try to make everything into like a self-help or a personal upgrade, like we've latched on to the parts of the Bible that talk about how Jesus is making things new right now in this life. And that's true. Those are absolute promises and truth. But for a whole millennia of history, of church history, and, and, the, and the bulk of the theology in God's word points to, like, you hadn't seen nothing yet. That's right. There's life, there's life later that you wouldn't even be able to describe. There's hope there that you can't even, can't even wrap your mind around yet. So let me ask you, what do you think about? What do you think about when you think of the word heaven? When you think of heaven, what, is, what comes to mind? What do you think about, right? Do you think about, you know, the beautiful city and, and the golden streets, the pearly gates and all of that? Do you think about the fact that there will be no pain, right? No, no death in heaven, no touch of sin anywhere in this place. Do you think about being reunited with all of our loved ones and the faith that have gone on before. I mean, those are all real things. But notice Paul said none of those things were the thing that he was waiting to see when he came to that door. What was he looking for? What did he want? This is the last thing this morning. A living faith desires more of Christ as the ultimate reward. More of Christ. He says, Timothy, I'm leaving. I'm departing this place. All right? I finished the course that God called me to do. I feel, I feel confident I did what he wanted me to do. And now I'm going to be with him. I'm going to be with him. The prize, Timothy, the prize is not recognition by people. The prize is not my book deal that's going to come out next week. The prize is when I die in obscurity in this Roman prison, I'm going to stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's going to get up off of his throne and come over to me and place his crown of righteousness on my head. The righteousness that was his to begin with, that he dressed me in in his own, and now he's dressing me in again, and he's declaring me righteous. That is what Paul was looking for. That was the hope that he was holding on to. That's how he could go through every single thing that he went through. That's how he could look ahead the entire time. And his faith was willing to take one step at a time because he knew someday I'm going to have that meeting, and it's going to be worth it all. It is going to be worth it all. And friend, as he says here in the last part of the verse, this is not only to me, but this is for all who have loved his appearing. It's not like Jesus is like, well, Paul, you're special. I'm going to give you the crown. Every man, woman, and child puts faith and trust in Jesus Christ 
and surrenders to him as Lord and Savior, dressed in his righteousness, standing before a holy God now, and God looks at you and sees Jesus' righteousness, when you come to that day, that glorious, hope-filled day, when you come there, you won't come with any shame. You won't come with any regrets. You won't worry about, man, I wonder what's happening back there. You're going to be like, where's Jesus at? Take me to Jesus. I want to see his face. I want to hug his neck. I want to tell him everything that he means to me in person. I want to experience the fullness of his person here. Righteous judge. What do you think about when you envision that day? How does that promise of hope later, how does that guide and direct the trajectory of your life? You know, in context, Paul said, like, this is what's waiting, Timothy. And remember earlier in the passage that we read, he's like, Timothy, preach the word, man. Tell people about this. Evangelize. Be about the work of ministry. Get it done. This life, it's a gift for you. Yes, from God. He loves you. He gave it to you. But he didn't give it to you just to squander on hopes that lead to nowhere but to be a representative of what's to come here in this place. So what do you think about when you think about that day? I want you to bear with me for a second. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to picture for a moment that you are standing there before that throne. And you are a visible witness. You're hearing these words that are said in Revelation 21. I want you to to, to envision what that would be like. This is what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. For the former things are passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. You know what's amazing about that? When he said the phrase, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Do you remember when Christ came to this earth? We're getting ready to celebrate that. What was one of the names that was given to him by the prophet Isaiah? Emmanuel, God with us. But in this case, in this this case, this is God's place that God is dwelling with God's people. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that that is mine if I put faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Isn't that a hope that could carry me through all of the twists and turns in the hills and the valleys and the uncertainties of the things that offer me hope in this life but end up dropping the ball? Isn't that something I can hold on to as I, in faith, a living faith, take one step at a time, taking God at his word? He's going to prove himself faithful when I stand on that day face to face with my Savior. Friends, where does 
your hope lie this morning? You know what's interesting about hope in the Bible is different than the way that we use it in our common vernacular. We say, I really hope that it doesn't rain next week. I don't know if it's going to rain. I can't do anything about that. I hope it won't, right? In the Bible, the kind of hope that Paul is talking about, that's not a, man, I really hope it works out kind of hope. That's an expectant, expectant expectation, right, that it's going to work out. That it's going to be what is promised to me because God is a God who keeps his promises. So friend, where does that hope lie? Are you here today and you're like, yeah, I'm burned out on hoping. I put that hope in the wrong places. I don't know where to turn. I tell you, you turn to the Savior. You turn to the Savior. He does not back down on his promises. That hope can be yours today, but it begins with that act of submission. So maybe today for you, for the first time ever, you need to take a step of faith, one step, and that step leads to a kneel. And it says, Jesus, I don't know everything, but I know I can't keep doing this on my own, and I need you. I need you to lead me. I need you to save me. I need you to be my hope. I surrender. Friend, God's word says, if you do that, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, God's word says you are saved. And that hope is yours. Christian, have you forgotten that that's supposed to be the expectation that we live toward? That's the hope that we look forward to. This time, this space is an opportunity to show that truth, to put that faith on display so that he might receive the glory and so that more men and women and children might stand before him someday and have that crown of righteousness put on their head. I trust God will use this to speak to you and these promises that we've shared of these last weeks are yours to claim and own. Trust God will use his word because it does not return empty.